morning, everyone. This morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. Just raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you one. Thank you, Benjamin. Appreciate it. All right. Good deal. Yep. Thanks. If you are new to the church or new to reading the Bible, we want to encourage you to begin this great quest of reading the scriptures together. If you're not familiar too much with the life of Christ, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the most significant period in the life of Jesus is what's called the Passion Week. Some of the Gospels devote a third of the, 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 the story to the last week of Jesus, but ironically, John devotes five chapters to the night before Jesus was crucified. We call this the upper room discourse. So Jesus is, is the night before he dies, says to the disciples, my hour has come. In other words, I'm about to die. I'm about to be glorified. I'm about to be resurrected. And I'm going to return to the Father. And so this whole section is framed around the idea that Jesus will die for our sins and then return to the Father. In fact, it might best be summed up in chapter 16, verse 28. If you want to look there real quick, Jesus, numerous times in this section, he says, I'm going back to my Father. I'm leaving the world. I'm going to the Father. So 16, 28, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father. I've come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. So that becomes sort of the framework for this whole discourse. He's like, guys, things are going to change significantly. Because I'm going back to the Father, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to, to be different. Some of them difficult, but trust me, he says, it's far better. So as, as we're walking through these, these five chapters, the first thing Jesus did, we saw in 13, was knowing that he was going back to the Father, he displayed his love by washing their feet and saying, I want you to do the same. And then he pre predicted that Judas would betray him. He said, so that you won't be stumbled. But then he says, now, I'm leaving and you can't come back. I'm actually going back to my father, but you don't have to be sorrowful because when I go back to my father, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again and receive you. I and the father are one. So this morning, we're going to look in the, the third part of this discourse where he describes the great things that are about to come. He says, because I'm going to go back to the father, there's some amazing things that are about to come. There's going to be five that we're going to look at this morning. And then next week, he gets up after finishing those five things to come. He says, let's leave. And he's probably walking out to the garden and they probably see like a, a, a field of grapes. And so he says, this reminds me of how you disciples are going to bear fruit. And so next week we'll talk about how and why we Christians can bear fruit because he returned to the Father. But then the next thing he's going to do, he says, because I'm going to go to the Father, there's coming heat. You're going to be persecuted severely. But you're going to have the Spirit's help and therefore, you don't have to give up hope. And then the last thing he does is in this upper room this night is he prays for the disciples, a whole chapter. So this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 14. We started this last week, and we're going to look in chapter 14, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And here we're going to see that because Jesus is going to the Father, he describes five great blessings that are about to come. And, and we participate. We experience these blessings. Now, the first thing we want to do is pray because the Holy Spirit's the one that will speak to us as we, as we learn. Father, 
Thank you for this time that we can pray over the Word of God because the Spirit's the one who teaches us. So even as we're going to learn this morning about the Spirit's help, may you just pour out upon us a blessing from your Word and teach us as we listen to the voice of Jesus as He meets with us and as we experience your power to feed and convict and shepherd and save people and transform us through your Word. It's for your glory we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to see, first of all, that the first thing Jesus says is this, powerful works are about to happen which will glorify God in answer to your prayers. Powerful works are getting ready to happen because I'm going to go back to the Father. And these powerful works are glorify God in answer to your prayer. So let me just kind of work through this. Look in verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll do also. And Greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So I want to just kind of unfold this idea of powerful works. Number one, think about this. God is powerfully working through his church today for his glory. God is not just sitting up there disinterested. He is displaying powerful works on planet Earth for His glory. He's building His church, and He's doing mighty things, and He wants to use us to do that. So think about God powerfully working. In Ephesians chapter 3, I want to encourage you to, to, to even think about this as you pray. Paul said this, Now God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to His power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church. So think about that. Today, in this time in which we live, God wants to powerfully work in our lives, in our church, for his glory. But we're going to notice in this passage that these works come in answer to our prayers. He says, greater works than, than these you'll do because I'm going back to the Father and now you can ask in my name. So I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here, but in a helpful way, I hope. How many of you, if you were here last week, remember I said, instead of watching Lady Gaga, take the folks around you and pray during the Super Bowl. How many of you did that? Okay, it was halftime, so we got half of you. That's not what halftime meant, but the other ones, I'm sure, in spirit, you wanted to. But, but notice, Jesus is inviting us. He says, you can now ask the Father in my name. So what are you asking God for? What powerful work are you expecting from him? And these powerful works are not primarily just physical miracles, but far more importantly, spiritual miracles. I mean, think about how many people did Jesus really gather as permanent followers while he was on earth? When he was crucified, even his 12 were scattered. But when the Spirit came, soon after that, Peter preaches once and 3,000 souls are converted, baptized, and join the church. God still wants to do that. He wants to powerfully work through us as we pray for miracles in the name of Jesus, for people's lives to be changed, addicts to be recovered, marriages to be healed, sicknesses to be healed, depressed people to be revived, broken lives to be brought back together, the, the, the country in shambles, Jesus Christ is powerfully working, but he does it in answer to our prayers. And the reason that our prayers are effective, this passage is telling us, is because we're asking him through our mediator, Jesus. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Ask the Father in my name. So, so when I pray, when I come into God's presence, 
the accuser of the brethren, the devil's like, why would you think God would hear you? He, some of you, uh, someone told me last week, they said, please keep reminding us that we can talk to God because I was kind of taught that don't bother him or I don't, I don't know whether he really cares or, or uh, you're not worthy to be here. So the devil will remind you that you're not worthy to be here and you go, yeah, you're right. But Jesus said I could come in his name and I need to learn to come there boldly. God's not going to look at me and go, what are you doing here? Because Christ is my mediator. So the Bible says, since I have a, a great high priest who's in the heavens, let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith. So bring your prayers to Jesus. Bring your prayers to God and say, Lord, I want to see you work powerfully. I'm going to believe you that you're going you're gonna to do great things. Think in your mind, am I even expecting that? Is that even on my radar? Are there any things that I'm asking God to powerfully work in my neighbors, my friends, my family? So that's the first promise, Jesus says. I'm going back to the Father and powerful works. will glorify God in answer to prayer. Secondly, though, Jesus promises something astounding. A permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So look with me in verse 15. Jesus says in 15 through 17, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now you'll remember last week I did start off by, by reminding you of something, and that was this. If you say that you love Jesus, if you say you're a believer, obey him. There are too many people in America that call themselves Christ followers and could care less about what he commands. It's likely that you're not a believer if you have no interest in obeying Jesus. We don't obey him to get to heaven. We obey him because he already purchased heaven for us. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But then he says this, I'm going to send you a helper. Now, this is the first of five times in which Jesus is going to use this word in this passage. I want you to note that this word in the original language is the word paraclete, P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-E. And it, it, it meant back then someone who comes alongside to strengthen you or help you. Remember, a word can have more than one meaning, and, and sometimes this word was used of a lawyer, like an advocate who comes alongside to represent you. But it also has the idea of someone coming along to strengthen you, to help you, and some translations even say, I'll send you a comforter. So this is the first time, but five times in this section, Jesus is going to mention this. Now, the main thing he's going to focus on here is not so much what he's going to do in terms of helping but that he will permanently indwell us. Now, this is a big deal to understand. First of all, I want to remind you, the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? So don't talk about the Holy Spirit like it was doing this or the force was doing that. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Father's a person. Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit's a person. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's role was different. We see him right in the beginning of the Bible. He's, he's hovering, over the, hovering over the earth at creation. But from time to time, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> would come down and he would, in a special way, indwell someone to do something for God. And it was sometimes only temporary. So as you're reading your Old Testament, you'll notice it'll say things like this. In Exodus 31, God told them to build this ornate 
furniture for the tabernacle. He says, see, I have put my Holy Spirit upon Bezalel. I've anointed him so that he can make these artistic designs. Sometimes God would put his Holy Spirit upon a judge to give him supernatural power like Samson. Or he would put his Holy Spirit upon a king like Saul. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. But the Holy Spirit's indwelling was sometimes temporary. So we read that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And because of that, David, after he sinned, was fearful of that. He said, Lord, please take not your spirit from me. But I want you to notice that Jesus was promising a great transition in the new covenant age. He said, the spirit of truth that's coming, the world doesn't see him or know him. They can't receive him. But you know him because he abides with you. But now you might want to underline this last phrase. He will be in you. What Jesus was speaking of is this great transition that would take place at Pentecost. When under the new covenant promise, when God would pour out his spirit in a new way, the spirit of God would indwell every believer permanently. Jesus says, he will be with you forever, verse 16. So let me just kind of recapitulate. The Old Testament, he indwelled some believers to do something for God, sometimes temporarily. Now, though, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer permanently. Now, I want to add one thing, and that is, when does this happen? Because some of you may have come from a church that taught that the indwelling of the Spirit is something that happens after you're saved, maybe years after you're saved, and it's sometimes framed under the terms, you're baptized by the Spirit. I want you to note that in the book of Acts, while that did happen twice that was for a very circumstantial reason that is not normal okay the normal way that the holy spirit works today is the moment you become a believer the holy spirit indwells you instantly now i'm going to support that from the bible first of all next to that phrase that says he will be in you right romans 8 verse 9 romans 8 verse 9 by the time paul taught and wrote the book of romans he said this if any man does not have the spirit of Christ within him, he does not belong to Christ. Now think about that. If somebody says to you, hey man, are you saved? Yeah, I gave my life to Christ. I belong to Christ. Hey, do you have the Holy Spirit? Well, wait a minute. Romans 8, 9 says, if any man does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So don't let people put you on a guilt trip that if you're a believer, maybe you don't have the spirit yet. They'll use this term, you need to be baptized by the Spirit, and then they'll say, the only way you can know that is speak in tongues. We need to know that I do not think that's what the Bible teaches. First of all, 1 Corinthians 12 says, not everyone speaks in tongues. So automatically, then this, some of you would go, well, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. There were exceptions in the book of Acts, but that's not the norm. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, now, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, this was far after he had been there, so there were plenty of converts that had gotten saved after he was there. And maybe one of them who's reading the letter just got saved yesterday. But this is what he said. By one spirit, you were all, now listen, you were all baptized. You were all made to drink of one spirit. So Christian, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He permanently indwells you. He will never leave you. You are sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. Now, what we're, what we're going to need to learn is, okay, what's that going to look like? 
How do I walk by the Spirit? What are the gifts of the Spirit? How do I pray in the Spirit? So that's coming. We're going to learn the ministries of the Spirit, but you need to be grounded in this truth that the Spirit is in you if you're a believer. And you don't have to worry about, well, I don't feel Him, or how do I know I haven't had a, a tongues experience? Jesus said He's with you and He will be in you. He's in you if you're saved. Now, that's His promise. So He goes, look, number one, you're going to do powerful works for God in answer to prayer. Number two, you're going to be permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Third, though, in verses 18 through 24, Jesus teaches us this, that after I die and go back to the Father, I'm going to give a personal disclosure, a personal disclosure of the Son and Father by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to show you this, but this is really, there's a little bit mystical here. So for some of you, you're like, whoa, I don't like that mystical stuff. But, but listen to what he says. This is, this is interesting. Jesus says in verse 18 to 24, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now you're like, that's just talking about what he said earlier. He said, I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm going to come again. And I'm going, no, it's not. This is not I'm going to come to you at the second coming. This is just real soon. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. So, so in verse 19, after a little while, Jesus says, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. No, wait. He says, I will come to you. You will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now you're going, wait, Tom, you're still missing the point. He's just talking about after he's resurrected, he's going to appear to them in the upper room, and he's going to say, see, here I am. And I'm going, no, it's still deeper than that. He's going to personally disclose himself and his father to all of his children, even today. And here's why I say that. Keep reading. Jesus says in verse 20, In that day, you will know that I am in the Father. But now he says, And you in me, and I in you. Not, I'm going to stand here with you. You're going to know me because I'm going to be in you. So he goes back to obedience. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. Now notice here. I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus is not limiting this to these 12 guys. This is every Christian. The Lord Jesus is in the process of personally disclosing himself to us. And if you're still not convinced, keep reading, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened? That, that you're going to disclose yourself to us, but not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, now watch, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Again, that's the third time he said that. Let me just say something. If you call yourself a Christian, you say that you've been saved, then it's not optional to say, I don't want to get baptized. I don't have to do what he says. That's the point of being forgiven, to become a follower. A disciple is a forgiven follower. So the first thing, if you're a Christian, you need to confess that with your mouth. You need to publicly go, yes, I am saved. I am a believer. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Now help me to follow you. But notice what Jesus says. He says, my father will love him. And now notice, we, not just me, we will come to him. Now look what he says. And we will make our abode with him. We will come. This word means to live. We will come and dwell with him. 
He who does not love me doesn't keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, think about what he said here in 18 to 24. I will come to you. You will see me. I will disclose myself to you. And finally, we will come and make our abode with you. So let me explain what Jesus is telling us here. He's telling us that when you become a Christian, you begin to experience a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not that suddenly Jesus came alive. He's always been alive. It's that you came alive spiritually, and now the Lord Jesus is a real and present and personal Savior, okay? And he wants to more deeply reveal himself to you personally so that you enjoy a sweet communion relationship with him. Now, the means by which he does this is through the Spirit of God. And I'll give you an, an analogy. J.I. Packer gave a really great analogy. You've heard me use this, maybe some of you. But here's a very good book that J.I. Packer wrote called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. Well worth reading. But as he talks about the different roles of the Holy Spirit, he said, I believe the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to focus on himself, but to more and more reveal to us the presence and person of Jesus. In other words, because I have the Spirit in me, I can know and, 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 and experience a relationship with Jesus. And he gives an analogy. He says, if you were walking by a, a, a snowy white night in which there was a little church just sitting on a hillside all lit up, and you were looking at the beauty of this church, you say, wow, look how pretty that looks. Now, even as you look at this build, that little fake building right there, the reason it looks so pretty is because there's lights on it. If we turn those lights off, you wouldn't see it very well. But none of us, as we look at that, go, wow, those are fascinating lights. Let me have, are they 20 watt? Or are they, are they bulbous interruptus? What kind of lights are they? You don't notice the lights because that's not their purpose. Their lights are to focus on something else, on the object. Same thing with the Spirit of God. Jesus is saying, I will come, and as the Spirit comes and indwells you, I will disclose myself to you. Now, as we worship and sing together, Benjamin, this will, Benjamin will be ready to run back up here and, and, and lead us in another song. Think about how, how the scriptures and our songs affirm this. For example, in the hymn, I come to the garden. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing. So, so this woman is singing of her fellowship with Christ. He walks with me, he talks to me, he speaks to me, he tells me that I am his own. Now for some of you are like, okay, now you're weirding me out. And I'm going, no, that's scripture. Ephesians chapter three, you're going, well, how could I experience more of this? Pray for it. Ephesians three, verses 14 through 20. Here's a novel thought. Instead of praying, now I lay me down to sleep, memorize this passage. Paul says this, I bow my knees to the Father, and I ask that he would strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner man so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Now, he's talking to believers. It's not like Christ isn't in them, but this idea of dwelling is this manifest living there, like Jesus said, I'll come and make my abode. And then he says, as, as a result of that, you and I will know the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for us. 
which surpasses knowledge, and we will be filled with the fullness of God. Is that too experiential for you? You're like, ah, I, I like it to stay right here in the cortex. And I'm going, stop it. The Spirit of God wants to manifest Jesus. So pray, Lord, I want to know you more closely. I want to I experience your company. Now, don't get all bent out of shape like, should I have a quiver in my liver and will I start crying? But pray for Jesus to be, be making himself more real and more known to you. He doesn't change, but God opens our eyes. So when we were younger, young people, we used to sing these songs called hymns, and we'd say, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. But you guys are singing it still. You're singing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to know you. You want to see him high and lifted up? I want to see Jesus lifted high. We, we sing about it. We pray about it. We want God to reveal Jesus to us. Now, it doesn't mean every morning when you get in your car and your commute, you're going to be like, Jesus, I, you're right here with me. I feel you, man. It's almost like you're snuggling up against me. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be this cold, dead objective. Yeah. So, so as you're praying, if you say, Lord Jesus, be with me today, I wonder if he'd say, hmm, I don't know, I thought I, thought I already said I, I'm with you always. So instead of saying, Lord, be with me today, how about, Lord, help me to know that you're with me today more closely. Help me to, to walk in your life. Help me, like Paul, to say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I'm now living in the flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and revealed himself to me. This is why people will say things like this when they get saved. I used to know about Jesus, but... But now I know him. I used to know he was real, but now I have a relationship with him. You with me? So this is a great promise, a personal disclosure of the Son and the Father by the Spirit. The next thing Jesus says is he goes, and listen, here's another reason why it's good. Because he gives us a promise that the Holy Spirit will be a teacher. So look with me in 25 and 26. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. In other words, I've been your teacher the last three and a half years. But the helper, now here it is, the paraclete, is that same word, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now notice, he's going to do two things. He will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Can you imagine these guys? They've been walking with Jesus for three and a half years, and he'd been teaching them all the time. You know, get up on the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, right? They're not going, <laughs> and they're going, to go, I'll read it later. As a matter of fact, I have a little cartoon somebody showed me. It has Jesus on, doing the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes, now listen up, everybody. Get this story straight, because I don't want there to be 12 different versions of this. But think about this. These guys didn't have any written New Testament scriptures. They had heard a lot of stuff from Jesus. Now, there was going to come a time short after that when God's going to expect them to write these things out. What did he say again? The Holy Spirit will come. So I think in a personal way to these 12, they particularly needed the Spirit to bring things to their remembrance. That's why when people say, oh, come on, this is just a book written by men. How can it be the words of God? Because the Bible says, God moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
All scriptures breathed out by God. God superintended these, these men. These apostles weren't just going, hey, you want to make up a religion, man? They were remembering what Jesus taught and they were being led by God to write down the word of God. And so in the same way, the spirit reminds us of scripture. Hello, reminds us. He can't remind you something that you've never read. Novel thought. So whatever color your Bible is, I don't care as long as it's red. R-E-A-D. He reminds us. Thy word have I hid in my bulletin. No, in my heart. So be reading the scriptures because it's those promises that the spirit will bring back to us. But also notice that he teaches us. He teaches us. And that's significant because ultimately, unlike any other book, you cannot approach the Bible simply with your intellect. You can get out your history book, you can get out your math book, you can get out your philosophy book, and you can go, let's have at it. But when it comes to the Bible, God has this mysterious way of revealing and concealing based on the ministry of the Spirit of God. And so we have to come to the Bible with a posture that says, Lord, I want you to teach me. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to me. I want to see things in your word that I wouldn't see were it not for your help. So, for example, you might learn this verse and pray this before you read your Bible. Psalm 119, verse 18. David said, Lord, open my eyes so I may behold wondrous things from your word. All of us who've walked with Jesus for a time will say, wow, I've, I've heard that passage before, but, but I didn't see that. Or, wow, the Lord really spoke to me. He taught me something. Now, how does the Holy Spirit teach us? I want you to think through this. If you want to read in more detail, look at 1 John chapter 2. And some of you are doing a good job of staring at me, but when I say look at, like write them down. The dullest pencil is better than the sharpest memory. So you can grow and go back and think about these things. In 1 John chapter 2, John says this. He says, I'm writing these things because there's people that are trying to deceive you. And the devil's still doing this. It's making a mess out of a lot of Christians because they don't know their Bible. So he says, there are people trying to deceive you, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. That's the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, and the anointing, the Holy Spirit, he teaches you all things. And so I ask the question, well, how does the Holy Spirit teach me? Because John actually goes on and he says this in verse 27 of 1 John chapter 2. He goes, you don't need anybody to teach you because you have the anointing to teach you. So wait a minute, hey, hey, Holy Spirit, Dr. Schnicker, myself, there's a couple of us who teach here, you know, you're putting us out of work, knock that off, you know. Hey, if, the, if, if, if they don't need anybody to teach me, then I'm out of a job, okay. But here's the thing, when the Bible says the Holy Spirit teaches us, it doesn't mean he teaches us apart from people, while he could and does sometimes, he also teaches us through people. But the idea is this. Whenever you listen to anybody speaking from the Bible, don't assume that everything they're telling you is the truth. So a really helpful verse, that would be another good one to memorize, would be Acts 17, verse 11. In Acts 17, verse 11, it says this, the Bereans were noble-minded because they received the word with eagerness, but then they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. So, as you listen to, to the things I'm saying, maybe you're like, hey, I was told you, you don't get the Holy Spirit till later. How can Pastor Tom say you get it right away? He, how can he say you get the Holy Spirit, he, he comes in you right away? Well, search the scriptures. 
but know that the Spirit of God is there to confirm and teach you and illumine you and keep you from being misled. So be careful now, because in the history of the church, the Spirit of God has led the church to come up with what we call orthodox major doctrines, right? So if you're the one, only one over here going, I don't believe Jesus is God, but I'm a Christian. The Spirit's telling me that. I'm going, whoa, whoa. The Spirit's not going to come up with some wild, fanciful, crazy thing that other Christians haven't affirmed. But at the same time, this is a comforting promise. Lord, I, I'm, I, I need you to help me. Bring me something out of your word. So, so it gives you an excitement about coming to the word. You're not just going, I've got to have my devotions, but rather, Lord, I want you to speak to me. Disclose yourself. Remind me of something. Comfort me. Speak to my heart. Last thing. Jesus says, and finally, I will give you peace that overcomes your fears. Look at verse 27. So Jesus has already told us some tremendous truths. Look, I'll, you're going to do powerful works. You're going to have a permanent indwelling by the Spirit. I'll personally disclose myself to you. I promise that the Holy Spirit will come and teach you. And lastly, he says, and I'm going to give you peace that will help you with your fears and your troubles. Now, notice how Jesus describes this peace. He says, beginning in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, this is a special peace that Jesus gives. He goes, listen, it's not as the world gives. My peace is different. But you know what's interesting is, be honest, the world does give peace, right? It, it'll, it'll throw you a bone. It'll give you something to simmer you down for a little bit. You're, you're worried and struggled, you know. There's stuff you can shoot in your veins, and you can gulp down too much to drink. You can go get lost in the pleasures of this world, and and sort of just disappear for a little bit. I remember a commercial years ago, those of us who loved to fish, I get this, it was, a, it was a beer commercial, but these guys were out trout fishing, right? And they're sitting around a campfire and they got trout frying and butter in the pan and, and it's a perfect night, you know, the, the tents in the background and of course what they leave out is the mosquitoes and the toilet paper, all, all this stuff. But these guys are sitting around this, this campfire and they go, fellas, it doesn't get any better than this, right? And on the one hand, I'm going, no, I get that. Been there, done that. That's fun, right? But really, it doesn't get any better than this, that, that life's ultimate peace is sitting around watching a bunch of fish frying fat. Come on. So some of you have been searching for peace in the wrong places, in a relationship, or in stuff, or in sex, or in substances, or in sports, or something, and you're finding that, you know what? It, 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 it's shallow, and, and I'm bumping across the gravel a lot. Jesus is promising a deep, real peace. It doesn't mean you don't have any troubles, that, but it's a peace that the Spirit of God gives. He goes, don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said I'm going to go away. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father. So if you're here this morning, you're full of fear and anxiety and troubles and pain, I get that. I go through that. But I also find that Jesus gives me peace. Anybody else? You say, yeah, me too. Amen? You're like, it's not like I'm going, whoa, but you're like, wow, he carries me through. And that's a great promise. Now, real quick, notice what Jesus says. He goes, I don't know why you guys aren't happy. I just told you I'm going to the Father. You, you should be glad I'm going to the Father, verse 28, for the Father is greater than I. 
And sometimes we're embarrassed. We're like, Jesus, um, please don't say that. The Jehovah's Witnesses are all over that now. Jesus, please. Like, like I have to be, Jesus, don't tweet that stuff. I, I have to kind of screen you. Because that's a difficult verse. How can Jesus say the Father is greater than I? This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that, that Jesus is not God, that he's not equal to the Father. And therefore, we should not worship Jesus. Now, I can tell you that from the Bible, that's heresy. And that would cost you your soul because you must confess that Jesus is Lord. John says at the end of this book, you must believe that he's the son of God. But there's an explanation for this. Jesus is not talking about his ontological equality, his being, like in being my father is greater than me. He's talking about his functional subordination, particularly when he came to earth. So Jesus is fully God, equal to the Father, but when he came down to earth, it was a great act of humility and a great act of, of emptying of himself. So in Philippians 2, it says, Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself, came down to earth. So, so he gave up the independent use of his deity and the display of his glory. So particularly while he was on earth, in a very real way, the Father was greater than him functionally, but not in being. Jesus isn't going, God's really, he's, the Father's like, he's God, I'm less. So this is the whole point. He goes, you should be glad because I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to be restored to that, to that position of glory. That's what he prays in 17. Father, return or, or take me back up and glorify me with the glory I used to have with you when the, before the world began. So when he says, Father's greater than I, don't go, oh no, I should become a Jehovah's Witness. But rather, while he was on earth, he says, you should be glad because this time of my death and crucifixion, now I'll be exalted to my place of name above all names, Lord of all. Amen? So finally, Jesus says this, listen. I have told you before it happens, so when it happens, you'll believe. And, and I'm not going to speak much more of you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Now, pay attention as you're in the upper room and right before that to what Jesus says about the devil. In chapter 12, he says, he says, I saw Satan falling from heaven. Jesus says, he says, now the prince of this world is judged. Something's about to happen at Calvary's event. And so when he says, the ruler of this world is coming, right, in a special and ugly way, Satan was bringing a presence towards Calvary. But Jesus goes, however, he has nothing in me. Now that's an idiom. We don't use that term in English. But what it means is he has nothing against me. He has no charges that he can bring against me. <clears throat> it's kind of like this when Jesus says, which of you convicts me of sin? So Satan comes to Jesus. And Jesus is like, he's got nothing in me. But then, then, then I go, well, what about when he comes after me? When I'm in that evil day, that Ephesians 6, he's got plenty in me. He's got plenty of accusations against me. And I go, yep. He does. And I don't have to say, hey, man, these are all lies, devil. I'm not a failure. I don't mess up. But I look up and I say, yeah, but Christ lives. And when the songwriter says, when Satan tempts me to despair and reminds me of my guilt within, upward I look. I see him there who made an end to all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul has been set free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him. 
and pardon me. So, so we don't have to, to constantly be in a spirit of condemnation, even if you struggle with that, because Christ has overcome Satan. And so Jesus says, so the world may know that I love the Father. I do what the Father commanded me. Get up and let us go from here. Some of you are going, yeah. Yeah, Tom, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. So, <clears throat> you there? Let's close in prayer now. I want you to take these truths home with you. God wants to do powerful works through you as you trust and pray and obey him. You're permanently indwelt by the Spirit. This week, you're asking the Lord Jesus to personally disclose a closer relationship. You have promised teaching from the Spirit, and you have peace. What are your fears today, Lord Jesus? Take away my troubled heart and calm my spirit. But if you're here today, and, and, and you're still gone, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't even know if I'm forgiven. Okay? But I know I'm a sinner. Then, then I got great news for you. If you're not knowing you're a sinner, and you're not under the conviction of your sin, and you're like, I'm glad I could be here with all these good people. This isn't for you, because there's no good people. When, come, come when you realize you're a sinner. But if you realize you're a sinner, Jesus said, I came to call sinners. I came to save sinners. If you realize you're a sinner, and you don't deserve heaven, and there's nothing you could do to earn it, then Jesus is right here saying, I died to pay for all your sins, and I will come into your life and completely forgive you and transform you freely as a gift. And here's what you do. You believe. You just believe that what I did is enough. You trust in me, and this transaction will take place, and you will be forgiven. I can't think of anything that would be more important than doing that. And if you're going, well, what about this? What about this? Jesus goes, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? Leave this world today and cast yourself on Jesus and believe the gospel. And if you're ready to do that, I invite you, even as we pray, to, to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. I believe and change me. I want to become one of your followers. I'll be here afterward to talk with you. If any of you would like prayer, a number of our elders and pastors or, or people here will be glad to pray with you. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we close this service, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all of his promises. And Lord, if there's one here today that, and you know who you are, if the Spirit's moving in your heart, just tell Jesus, I believe, Lord, I'm ready to follow you. Please forgive me. Bless your flock, Lord. Send us home encouraged. And we expect not only here but in Syria and all over the world that you're going to do great works because you went to the Father and you've given us the Spirit. Answer our prayers for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy one another's company after you go get your children so our children's <laughs> workers can. They want to enjoy company too. Have a great day.